0: good morning. It is great to be here with you this morning. As Pastor Brett said, my name is Josh Edwards. I attend the Montrose campus and and I actually get to come and hang out with you guys um, every once in a while. So it's a a treat to be able to do that. And there's nothing that makes me happier. And don't take offense to this. Then shortly, I will not get to hang out with you as much. Because Aaron's going to be here and that's going to be a great thing. So I'm very excited for this campus and for Bridgewater as a whole. Um, It's great to be here and continuing on in our series um, as we look in 1 Corinthians and we look specifically at the unity that is found within and should be found within our church. Now, if you've been tracking along with us as a recap, and if you, maybe you're just jumping in today for the first time in this series, you can jump onto the app and and catch up. But as a real brief refresher, the first week, we learned what we all know. The church is full of really messed up people. Can I get an amen? Okay, and if you didn't say amen, it's really your fault. Um, The church is full of messed up people, and yet... God still loves us. That's so cool. That even though I am just a really, really screwed up individual, God still loves me. And that's what we looked at in our first week. And last week, um, we talked about the unity within the church. And how that's not only something that we should want, but something we should fight for. We should fight for unity within church the church, within these walls, within the church, the big C church, or, or the church global. Um, it, it's great to, to see and strive and, and see other churches succeed. I listen to, I drive around a lot for work, and so I listen to a lot of different podcasts. I listen to churches. My mom goes to a church in Tennessee, and so I listen to her church. I don't know why, but it's so cool to hear that they're launching another campus. That's awesome. There's a unity within the body of Christ, and we should strive for that. This week, we're going to be looking at the pivotal point, the linchpin, the, the, the hinge on which, on which our unity should be found. And we were singing about it a little bit ago, the cross. The cross is something that should bring unity within the church. It's something that should bring unity within each other, but it's not a surprise to think that we live in a very a very divided culture. If I were to ask you all what the most important thing we should be focusing on today, I bet I would get a lot of different answers. We're divided. I would get answers, um, like if I asked what was the most important thing, some of you would say Vaccines. That's the most important thing today. Some of you would say, who's at fault with the Russia and the Ukraine conflict war right now? Some of you would say the most important thing are the road conditions. Being a Pennsylvanian, I'm a little jealous. That would probably be near the top. Some of us would say jobs. Some of us would have, have, have the economy as our most important going on in today's culture. We are are divided when we even think about what the most important thing is in our life. When we think of our culture, we can see in in, in the day that Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, as that's where we're going to be this morning, their culture was no different they were extremely divided in what they felt was the most important thing. And Paul was bringing this all together, saying the most important thing is the cross of Christ. That is the most important thing. And, and today we're going to be looking at what it means to live a cross-centered life and how that will not only affect our unity within our church, but how that could affect every aspect in every area of how we live our lives. So how would you feel this morning if you glanced over to your neighbor, and don't do it just in case this is reality, but if you glanced over at your neighbor and you noticed that they were wearing a necklace that had a mushroom cloud on it. And you ask them, why are you wearing a mushroom cloud necklace? I'm just remembering the atom bomb. How would you feel if tomorrow on your way to work, you drove up and on the entrance uh, by the gate, there was a sign that said, to work brings freedom. And you asked your boss, what does that sign mean? And he said... I just want to. See. And they had a tattoo of an electric chair. Or, or they, they had some new earrings of a needle. And you said, What on earth? And I just want to remember and celebrate and commemorate lethal injection. We would be concerned. Right? Some of you might slide over a few seats if you're sitting next to someone with a mushroom cloud necklace. We would be appalled, even, at the thought of celebrating something so detestable. Something that marked and marred our history. And yet, today, we sing about a cross historically a cross was a device of torture now just to make sure we all understand where we're all coming from and we're going to do a little bit of audience participation throughout so be honest how many of you in some way shape or form have a physical representation of a cross on your person necklace tattoo earrings okay so we've got some people That you might say would be in that category of celebrating and commemorating a detestable act. The cross was such a gruesome moment in history that the Jewish people would not even participate. They could not, they could not participate in a crucifixion. They had to get the Romans to do it. The cross was reserved for slaves, foreigners, the worst criminals ever. It was not something you talked about in mixed company. It was a symbol of pain and torture. And so some of you who are here today, and maybe you're visiting, maybe you're just jumping in. You might be a head scratching right now going, if it's that bad, why do you sing songs about it? If the first century was so embarrassed by the cross, why today is it such a pivotal part of who we are? Why today is that guy who's up there yelling at us, telling us that that has to be the central part of our unity? Well, Paul tells us that the gospel or the good news is the message of the cross. The good news of what we believe is the message that's found in the cross. So what does that mean? When you hear, if you're, you're here and maybe this is all new to you, when you hear us say that the cross brings good news, that means that there's bad news, right? That means that there's, there's a counterpoint. And the bad news is, the, is that we are Sinners under judgment. We need a way of escape. And that escape is found in the cross. Paul begins talking about the cross and he is really redefining what the cross is in their minds. So this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're gonna do like a like a little old school Bible study if you're cool with that, and if you're not, it's too bad because I'm gonna do it anyways. Where I'm gonna read a couple of verses and then I'm gonna explain them. Um, but we're gonna start in verse 18 of chapter one, and we're gonna look at how the cross is the center point, but at the same time, while it brings unity, it also is a very clear dividing line. It it, it separates. Paul says this in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Paul right away says the cross divides us. It it, it divides humanity. Um, We look at the fact that there are people who are perishing, people who, who are without Christ. And right now, the thought of the cross to them is Foolishness, Paul says. And then there are those, he says, who are rescued. Those who have an understanding and a belief and an acceptance of the cross. And he says, to those it is the power. What divides the entire world is not race. It is not nationality. It isn't status or wealth. Paul says, what divides us is is the cross. In the day of the, that Paul was writing, the Jews and the Greeks, they wanted to win. They wanted power. They wanted control. They wanted a, a, a philosophical dominance. They wanted a military, milita, milita, militaristic... Um, I don't even know what I'm saying. They wanted a really strong military. That's more or less it. They wanted religious dominance as well. But the cross was the opposite of that. The cross was a symbol of defeat. The cross was a symbol of torture and and ultimately death, not dominance. So so Paul says, there are those who are perishing in its foolishness. But on the other side, those who are being rescued, those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, they see the cross as power, God's power, God's rescue on their life over sin. So we fight for unity because that divide. Is there that, that divide that's going to ultimately separate for all of eternity? We fight for unity, we fight for an understanding of the cross. And Paul continues in verse 19. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of the world. Paul asks some rhetorical questions. He says, Where is the wise person? And remember who he's talking to. He's talking to these, these Greeks, these Jews, these people in Corinth that, that pursued these things. He says, Where is the wise person? You know, that orator, that, that person who was in that public speaking mode. In Corinth, they would fill these stadiums with thousands of people to hear these philosophers come and, and speak. Just think of like the greatest TED Talk in today's world being packed out. And Paul says, where is that? What does that do? He says, where is the teacher of the law? He was speaking directly to the Jews, saying, where is your smartest and most intelligent religious leader? Where is your philosopher? Again, speaking to the the Greeks, saying, where is the genius? And he says, where do those people stand with the cross. And the answer is. That they don't. They, they stand in, in logical opposition. To the cross. Paul continues. For since, for since in wisdom of God. The world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. To save those who believe. He says the wisest of the three categories above. They don't know God, and so they they don't believe in God. But he says those who simply believe in the gospel and the good news, those of us who believe that we are sinners, that we have a debt, that there's something that we have to pay in order to satisfy that debt, the good news is that the cross pays our death debt. And so when we seek to live a cross-centered life, we find three key items. And the first is this. If you want to live a cross-centered life, you have to understand that your salvation, that our salvation comes from the cross. So let's ask a question here. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page, and I'm going to raise my hand first so no one can say that he's picking on me. How many of you would say that you've ever done something wrong? You might even go as far to say that you have sinned. Oh, come on, keep them up. It's not that bad. All right, so glance around and you can see that everyone who's honest (laughs) has their hand up. So we've all done wrong things. We've all done things that we would even go as far as to say That we have sinned. To live a cross centered life means that I have been saved from that sin. Now, those of you who have been, maybe you've been a believer in Jesus for a really long time, but you're still hanging on to that decision you made a month ago. That action you did when you were a teenager. That thing that you did that you just can't. It was just so bad, Josh. You just don't know how bad it was. Understand that if you find yourself living under that guilt. You're not living a cross-centered life. Because a cross-centered life says, I have been freed from that sin. I am no longer held in bondage by that sin. Because of the cross, I have received forgiveness So if you want to live a cross-centered life, you have to take that sin to the cross and leave it there. Leave it before God and say, God, this is a choice I made. This is an action I did that is wrong. And I need your forgiveness for it. And then begin to move from that. It's one of the easiest things of our life that we often miss is that we can't earn our way out of a debt when it comes to sin. We understand, I know there's a lot of really good people in here. I know a lot of you, and you're really good people. You're not good enough, right? I mean, we'll be honest. You're not good enough to earn your way out of that debt, The unique thing about Christianity when it comes to sin is that Christianity tells you flat out, you're not good enough. There's nothing you can do, Brett, that's going to get forgiveness for that sin. You can't say enough prayers. You can't donate enough money. You're wrong. And the only way you can get better is nothing you can do of your own power. That's what sets Christianity apart. It's because it says you're not good enough, but God is. But Jesus Christ, because of his action on the cross, was enough. Paul continues in verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness of the gentiles remember they want power they want wisdom but we preach the cross paul says we preach death we preached christ crucified the jews couldn't get past that because they said he's not the messiah because the messiah is going to do what he's going to overthrow the roman empire and jesus was crucified the, the Greeks or the Gentiles, they say it's foolishness. They wanted this philosophical powerhouse, not a self-sacrificing servant. The reality is if Jesus showed up today, a lot of people within the church, likely this building, but the bigger church, a lot of people would be grossly disappointed in Jesus, Because Jesus would not have picked a presidential candidate. He wouldn't have endorsed one, said, you know, going on TV and said, this is who I'm I'm voting for. You should vote for him. Jesus wouldn't have done that because he was pressured to do that same thing when he was walking the earth. Jesus would not have run for office. Remember, when he was on earth, they wanted him to be the king. And he refused. He fled. Jesus would likely be found in the slums somewhere, sitting in an alley, heroin alley somewhere. And he would likely have died by riot or electric chair. It's my assumption. Jesus would have disappointed a lot of us if he were here today because we want a certain thing. And Jesus said, no, no, I came to serve Others, Verse 24. But to those who God called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. To those who God has opened your eyes. He, he, he says... I'm calling you from an improper view of life. I, instead of looking to your own human power, instead of looking to your philosophical power, I want you to look to God's power. The cross is powerful enough to defeat any sin in your life. The cross is wisdom because it, it provides a, a reconciliation plan between us God. Paul continues, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world to despi- and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. There's a misconception in today's society that permeated from the first century till today that people who believe in Christ, people who follow uh, the tenets that we find in scripture are weak and stupid. I don't know if you've ever been maybe called that outright or at least people think that way about you and you kind of know that they do. And and if you're here today and that was maybe the first time you heard those passages and you feel like Paul just like totally dissed you, uh, understand in a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about how how we are um, just an amazing group of of people. He says that we're gifted people. But what he says is God can use the things that the world finds weak. The world looks at me and says that I'm stupid Because I don't buy into the philosophy of the world. I I don't buy into naturalism. I don't buy into the, the quote science that says that everything just happened. The world says I'm naive. Because I believe in an invisible God. I believe in what the world says would be outdated thinkings. I believe in the sanctity of life. I believe in marriage. And these are things that the world says, I am stupid if I believe those things. I say that I need God's help to get through something. And the world says you're weak because you need help. Working in the finance industry, the world definitely thinks I'm foolish because I give away my money. My money, right? My hard earned money. I give it away. The world looks on me and you and says, We are foolish, we're naive. And God says, I'm going to take the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, to confuse those wise people. God is going to do things through us that doesn't make natural sense. Why did God do it that way? Paul continues in verse 29. He says, I'm doing it that way so that no one can boast before him. The important things of this world, they don't impress God. It doesn't make God admire you more if you have certain abilities. If you're really good in this particular area, God doesn't admire you more. You know why? Because he made you that way. He's like, good, you're finally doing what I told you to do. It is because of him, Paul says in verse 30, that you are in Christ Jesus. He has become our wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Christ has become our wisdom. He has become our righteousness. You can't be good enough. Remember that debt, that sin, that bad thing that you did, even if you only did one bad thing in your life. That is not good enough. Christ has become our righteousness. He has become our holiness, our perfect, our perfection, our set-apartness. He has become that so that we can stand before God perfect and blameless. So that God then sees not only me and my sin, but He sees through the filter of the cross. He sees me then. And because of that cross... Because of Jesus' death on that cross, he sees perfection. Paul says that he's our redemption. He redeemed us. He purchased us. He bought us with a price. And that price was his blood. And because of all that, in verse 31 says, Therefore, because of all that, as it is written, let one who boasts... Boast in their own power, right? No. Because of that, we're going to boast in the Lord. So the second idea, if you want to live a cross-centered life, is, is when we win, we only win because of the cross. We can only boast in the Lord because of that cross. We don't win because we get our agenda because people agree with us, because the, our, the person we voted for won. That's not how we win. We don't win because we're smart or savvy or a really good person who tries hard. We win because God removed all of the roadblocks between us and eternity and the presence of God. Because that cross removed every hindrance between us and experiencing eternity free from sin. That's why we win. That's why we win. We have a mindset that for me to win, in order for me to win, someone has to lose. I coach basketball uh, down in uh, Pennsylvania. And unfortunately, we were the losers yesterday. And there was a winner. And in competition, there's a winner and there's a loser. If there's not, no one would watch. It's not like the, the little kids where everybody wins. No, no, there's winners and losers. We all know you're the parents who you keep score, right? Even though there's no school board, you're like, yeah, my Johnny scored four goals. He's awesome. In spiritual things, for me to win doesn't mean someone has to lose. When I win as a Christ follower, it doesn't mean that someone on that side loses. What does that mean in my life? That means I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I don't have to win every argument. I'm talking to the teenagers right now. You don't have to win every argument. Okay, understand. You don't have to win every situation. I don't have to be better than all of my coworkers. Because the only thing that sets me as a winner is Christ. That's what I'm going to boast in. I'm going to boast in the Lord. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony of God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not the wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul is saying, when I came to you, and he's reflecting back to the times when he physically traveled. He says, when I came to you, I didn't come with wisdom or, or eloquence. And if you remember anything about Paul's life, he was one of the smartest, most educated, eloquent speakers there was. So he's not self-deprecating for the fact that he just wants everybody to give him those compliments. No, Paul, you're really a good guy. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I didn't come to you in those ways. I came so that you would only hear the cross. He says, everything about my life was the cross. Every conversation I had filtered to the cross. Now. You always get, I, I worked with teenagers for a bunch of years, and so you always get those little smart-out teenagers who are like, so when Johnny asked me about the game the other day, I should say, no, oh, how about that cross? No, don't be that guy. Don't, if somebody wants to talk to you about the game and somebody wants to talk to you about how awesome Philadelphia sports are, go ahead, enjoy that moment. Don't be the guy that says only things about making people feel less than they are. But he says, every part of my life, from the conversation I have, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, that is all filtered through the cross. Paul chose to live a life that was cross-centered, and because of that, he absolutely filtered every decision he made through that, So if you want to live a cross-centered life, you have to remember that your salvation comes from the cross. You also have to remember that you win because of the cross. And the third and final point is that we have to view others through the cross. In light of the cross, we have to view other people. At the cross, Jesus died for his enemies. He died for me and he died for you so that he could set things right before God. How would our lives look if we looked at every person we encounter in light of the cross? How would you view them if you filtered all of your actions, all of your decisions through the cross? When you saw your neighbor, what would happen if you saw them through the cross? That person that you just, their dog just comes onto your yard and they leave those treats. Whew. If you saw them in light of the cross, how would that affect your interactions? That person is somebody that was worth dying for, Jesus said. That difficult coworker, stealing all of your credit. What would happen if you viewed that person in light of the cross? that person who voted differently than you. On the other side of the political aisle, remember, Jesus died for them. How do you view that person? How do you interact with that person? Some of you are like, I love all Republicans. I love all Democrats, not the Republicans, though. I've heard people say, I love everybody, just not my sister. You don't know what she did, and not in a joking way. If you find yourself desiring to live a cross-centered life, John, 1 John says that if you, if you say that you love God, but you hate someone else, you're a liar. That's what Scripture tells us. If we want to live a cross-centered life, that has to affect every decision that we have. If I want to live a life motivated by the cross, my very first and fundamental decision is that I have to come to the realization that the cross is the most important thing. This past week, my, uh, my wife and I, we took my daughter on a college visit. And my daughter loved the college. And while we were driving around the town, we were looking at different churches. And, you know, there were some churches, some churches that you can tell had a certain likely a certain belief and so i said well let's not assume anything let's do some more research before we make an assumption so i went home and we did some research and in montrose last week pastor bob said this and i'm sure it was something similar said here we have to major on the majors right you have to emphasize and make the most important thing the most important thing so when i started looking through these churches with my daughter i said What is the most important thing? What they believe about the cross. What do they believe about salvation? What do they believe in regards to this? Because that is the most important thing. What is your view of the cross? I coach basketball with a guy who he carries a cross in his pocket And I asked him, what does he carry it for? He says, it's a good luck charm. I appreciate his honesty. What's your view of the cross? Is that the the tipping point in your life, The, the linchpin that holds everything together? Is that the moment that brings unity between you and God is only because of the cross? Or is it a good luck charm that your grandma gave you? this morning, if you find yourself with a, maybe you say, Josh, I don't understand much more about the cross than it's a good luck charm or it's the thing that's on the side of the building or, or you see him here and there. If you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to allow that cross to change your life, to allow what Jesus did on that cross to change your life, let today be that day. In a second, I'm going to lead us in a really, really brief prayer. Then maybe for the first time in the quietness of your seat, you will pray that prayer. And then afterwards, we're not going to hunt you down. We're not going to tackle you or anything. But I would encourage you to find somebody with a name tag. Find somebody who brought you and just say, I prayed that prayer and I have no idea what to do next. If you found yourself this morning with an understanding that at one point in your life you, you fully trusted in Christ and maybe you've kind of stepped away from that the beauty of the cross is oh it's so expansive it will find you where you are and Jesus says he will welcome you back so as we close our time would you, would you pray with me And if you're here this morning and you've never prayed the prayer, I would encourage you to to think about this. And if you find yourself in a position where you've never prayed a prayer to accept what Jesus did on that cross, I would ask you to, in the quietness of your seat, repeat after me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things. I need your forgiveness. Please save me. And if you're here this morning and you found yourself wandering away from the message that you once believed, I'm going to lead us in a prayer and I would say, God, you promise that you will find us where we are at. That you will forgive us of those sins, that you will cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And just like the prodigal son who wandered away, That you will come running and accept us with open arms. Restoring the relationship. God, I thank you for that promise. I thank you for that commitment in your love. God, and I pray that today would be the day that we are changed because of the cross. Amen.